Jeremiah chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. Now King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. But neither he nor his servants, nor the people of the land gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. And Zedekiah, the king, sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Pray now to the Lord our God for us. Now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people, for they had not yet put him in prison. Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt And when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah who sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt to their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord. Do not deceive yourselves, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man from his tent and burn the city with fire. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem To go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard who was there, whose name was Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he seized Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, you're defecting to the Chaldeans. Then Jeremiah said, false. I'm not defecting to the Chaldeans. But he did not listen to him. So Arijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Therefore, the princes were angry with Jeremiah and they struck him and put him in prison in the house of Jonathan, the scribe. For they had made that the prison. When Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells and Jeremiah had remained there many days, then Zedekiah, the king, sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, there is. Then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, what offense have I committed against you, against your servants or against this people that you put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying, The king of Babylon will not come against you or against the land. Therefore, please hear now, O my lord, the king. Please let my petition be accepted before you, and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe, lest I die there. Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison, and that they should give him 
daily a piece of bread from the baker's street until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus, Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. In this chapter and in the next chapter, Jeremiah will be falsely accused of treason, desertion, and in verse chapter 38, dissension. Chapter 37 begins with a a request for a prayer from King Zedekiah, who is the king who replaced Jehoiachin in chapter 36, verse 30. And so for those of you who are completely lost and completely confused, this passage in chapter 37 is a continuation from chapter 34. And we begin with the word of God being rejected by the king, by his servants, by the people. In verse 1 it says, Now King Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, reigned instead of Coniah the son of Jehoiakim, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah. Those of you who are unfamiliar with the kings of Israel and Judah, Coniah is the abbreviated form of the name Jehoiachin. And that's found in chapter 22, verse 24, and also again in verse 28 of chapter 22. Nebuchadnezzar appointed Zedekiah to be the king over Judah. Coniah was removed after serving only three brief months. Nebuchadnezzar had come in. He had captured the city. He had made Zedekiah a vassal, if you will. And Zedekiah was the son of Josiah, who was brother to Jehoiakim. And so Zedekiah even though he's been established as a vassal king to the king Nebuchadnezzar, in his heart of hearts and in his soul of souls, he hopes that he can reach out to the king of Egypt, who will deliver him from the hand of the king of Babylon. And in verse 2 it says, But neither he, that is the king Zedekiah, nor his servants, nor the people of the land, gave heed to the words of the Lord, which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. He was a poser. He was a pretender. He was a man who would flirt with the word of God. Have you ever met someone who flirted with the word of God. They didn't actually enter into a relationship and fellowship with the word. They just sort of flirted around with the Bible. They just sort of thought that it was an interesting thing to sort of entertain. And in the last chapter, we learned about the inspiration and the preservation of God's word. But with this new king came the sad and tragic fact that this administration, just like the last administration, was going to ignore the word of God. By the way, what are some of the sad consequences when people ignore the word of God? In this chapter, we're going to learn several things. Number one, for King Zedekiah and his servants and the people, it means in part, no answer to prayer. If you don't really believe God's word and if you ignore God's word and you rebel against God's word, doesn't it make sense to you that your prayers are going to be ineffective? 
The second thing is the the king will plead with Jeremiah to ask God to deliver them from the advancing armies of Babylon. Remember what his prayer is. His prayer is, I want to duck the consequences of our sin. I want to undo the word of God and I want to pretend like it never happened. And so disobedience to God's word will instill a false and futile hope in the armies and the governments and the resources of foreign powers. In the case of Judah, again, they're going to look to Egypt to be their deliverer. And in the end, God's judgment would exact a devastating toll The fall of Jerusalem. So what happens when you disregard, disobey, ignore God's word? Minimum, your prayers aren't answered. Minimum, you become self-deluded. Minimum, you invite judgment. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Ignore the word of God. Prayers are hindered. People are given false hope. People are not only given false hope, but they embrace deception and judgment is inevitable. Keep that in the back of your head just for a moment. Look at verse 3. And Zedekiah the king sent Jehokal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, pray now to the Lord our God for us. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how does he pronounce all of those names? It's because I have to listen over and over again to Chuck and Alistair Begg and other Bible teachers pronounce them over and over and over again. The people I don't listen to for the pronunciation of the names are people like Raul Reese because he always gets it wrong. But God love him. He gets the passage right. The name Jehukal means the Lord is able. By the way, he's going to appear again in chapter 38. If you just turn the page of your Bible to chapter 38, verses 1 through 6, there he's called Jukal. And he is going to urge that Jeremiah be executed. So ask yourself a quick question. If a person is pretty much committed to killing you, would you label that person a friend or a foe? Foe. Okay, good. This is good. This means you're listening. This means that this guy is not friend, but he is foe. But he does come on behalf of the king and he gives the message to Jeremiah, pray for us. Zephaniah isn't listed in chapter 38, so we're not exactly sure where he stands with Jeremiah. But remember, remember, for those of you who have been following along in the book of Jeremiah and you've been following along in the study, you'll remember that several chapters back, the Lord instructed Jeremiah and he said, don't pray for these people. And I know what some of you are thinking. That sounds kind of rude. That sounds kind of harsh. I mean, what's the harm in praying for people? The Lord's instructions are don't pray in such a way that you think that you can undermine, discourage or otherwise prevent the plan of God and the purposes of God and the judgment of God. But look carefully. The king 
has asked you to pray, Jeremiah. By the way, has anyone in your family, an unbelieving member of your family, has any unbeliever in your family or has some unbelieving friend ever said to you, hey, could you pray for me? It's pretty common occurrence. Unbelieving family, unbelieving friends, they see you as the, to- as the token God person. And so when things are going bad and things are going rough, they look to you to be the token person who's going to intervene on behalf of God. But for the unbeliever, it rarely occurs to them that there are things that can hinder your prayers. Does God have any obligation whatsoever to hear the prayers of an unbeliever? The answer is no. Did you know that unconfessed sin can hinder your prayer? That's what it says in Psalm 66, 18. Insincerity in Matthew 6, 5. Carnal motives in James 4, 3 when it says you pray, but you're praying in such a way not simply because you are, you're entering into a dialogue or a conversation with me. It's you want stuff from me. Or unbelief, it says in James chapter 1, verse 5, you have not because you ask not. If you ask, you ask amiss. Or if you're going to ask God, those who approach God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So does it shock you or surprise you that unbelief, unconfessed sin, bad motives, insincerity can thwart prayer? We're given example after example of those who refuse to submit to biblical teaching that they shouldn't expect an answer. In the book of Proverbs, chapter 28, verse 9, it says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Now, I've said this before. I'll say it again. When God wants to use a word to express grave displeasure... When God wants to use a word to describe something that is disgusting to God, he uses the term abomination. I'm trying to think of a single word that is more descriptive, and I can't. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24, it says, Because I have called, and you refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no one regarded Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at you at your calamity. I will mock you when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, they will call on me and I won't answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and they didn't choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel. They despised my every rebuke. In other words, part of what the book of Proverbs is saying is, well, wait a minute, pause, pause. You ignore the Bible. You disbelieve the Bible. You ridicule the Bible. You separate yourself from the Bible. You distance yourself from the plan of God, the purposes of God and the commands of God. And then all of a sudden one day you go, well, wait a minute now. Okay, I need you now. I need you to be on my side. But they haven't really repented. 
There isn't a sense in which the heart has turned and embraced (laughs) the forgiveness and mercy that's available. It says in verse 4, now Jeremiah was coming and going among the people in the Septuagint. It says that he was free to have travel, access, reign in the city, if you will. Now he was coming and going for they had not yet put him in prison. And in verse 5 it says, Then Pharaoh's army came up from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem heard news of them, they departed from Jerusalem. So get the picture. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians have come. They're laying siege to the city. As they're laying siege to the city, the king of Egypt marches from the south to the north to relieve the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The Chaldeans flee for a moment in order to address the advancing armies of Egypt. And because they're leaving the siege and they're addressing the armies of Egypt, there is within them this sense of hope for the people of Jerusalem that maybe all of these prophecies that Jeremiah has been giving aren't exactly correct. At this time in history, there was the Egyptian king Hophra, who ruled Egypt. And when Hophra assumed the throne, he attempts to reverse the Babylonian encroachment on what's known as the Levant. The Levant is that strip of land. It's the land bridge that connects Egypt to Assyria in the north, which, of course, by the way, the southern part is Judah. The northern part was Israel. And so it would appear that Nebuchadnezzar lifts the siege temporary We're not privy to the details, but apparently the Egyptians will retreat. The Chaldeans will once again assume the siege. They will eventually capture and burn the city. But there is this quiet. There is this respite. There is this calm. And during this calm, you can imagine that the city that's been under siege has an opportunity to sigh a collective sigh of relief, restock the, 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 uh, the cupboards, if you will, and, and the storehouses. It says in verse 6, Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me, Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, is going to return to Egypt. He's going to go to their own land. Now, remember why the king has asked Jeremiah to pray. Jeremiah, we need you to pray for us. We need you to pray that the Babylonian army will go away and that we'll be delivered from this threat. And sure enough, the Babylonian army goes away. It looks like Egypt has come to the rescue, but the Lord reminds Jeremiah to go to the king and say, hey, you asked, I'm going to tell you. Pharaoh's armies come up to help you, but guess what? He's going to hightail it back to Egypt and the Chaldeans shall come back and fight against this city and take it and burn it with fire. This is not what the king wants to hear. The king wants good news and not bad news. Thus says the Lord in verse 9. Do not deceive yourselves saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us for they will not depart. 
In other words, for the people who are getting a false hope, who are saying, maybe Jeremiah is wrong. Maybe the prophecy is wrong. Maybe all of the stuff that was supposed to happen isn't going to happen. The leaders of Jerusalem and Judah, they don't want to believe the word of the Lord. They don't want to believe the prophecies of Jeremiah. The leaders want to believe that that Jeremiah is going to be discredited. The people apart from faith and the people apart from Jesus, they're the ones who are subject to deception. And you see, there are people, there are people, make no mistake about them. Maybe you used to be that person or maybe you are one right at this very moment. You want to believe that maybe the prophecies in the Bible aren't true. Well, you know, the Bible says that. The things are going to get worse and worse. Yeah, I don't want to believe that. Well, you know, the Bible says that there's going to come a time when a wicked ruler is going to come on the scene and he is going to consolidate the governments of this world. And there is going to be a gigantic rebellion against God on a global scale. Yeah, I don't want to believe that. You know, the Bible teaches That the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. The Bible teaches that for the person who wants to continue in rebellion and disobedience, that he's going to have to stand before a God and give an account of his life. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. That doesn't, I'm not good with that. And you're not good. Why? Well, because my life hasn't been exactly, you know, like, you know, a good life. It's been a sinful life. It's been a life of rebellion and disobedience. But didn't you hear the rest of what the Bible says? That there's forgiveness and there's life and there's grace and there's mercy and there's hope. You see, I, I, think, I think you need to know something. Do the people in the world think you're crazy? Yeah. Do some of them nicely, they don't necessarily think you're crazy. They just think that you're deceived. They think that you've devoted your life to a deception. You've devoted your life to a book that says it's been written from God, a communication from God about the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And they think, they think, they think that the reason why you believe all this nonsense is because you're running away from reality. But who's really running? Who is really running away from the truth? You see, in the world, there are two kinds of people. I'm not not Italian people and those who wish they were not that kind of, although that's parts true. It's the people who are running to the truth. And there's the people who are running away from the truth. There are those who believe the Bible and there are those who reject the Bible. There are those who believe God's word and those who reject God's word. Those who believe prophecy and those who reject prophecy. And the leaders of Jerusalem and Judah, they don't want to believe the word of God and they don't want to believe the prophecies of Jeremiah. But who's really running away from the truth? Who really is the person who's saying, 
I want to ignore this issue of sin and I want to ignore this issue of, of, of rebellion. I want to ignore this issue of judgment. I want to ignore this issue of ultimate reality and the ultimate reality of what's going to take place in the future. Who's really running from the truth? You see, the Bible doesn't ignore the problem of sin. It doesn't ignore the problem of suffering, but rather it presents the solution. The Bible tells us the truth about God and the truth about our sinful condition and the truth about Jesus Christ. So Jeremiah was one of those people who saw clearly what was going to happen in the future. Jeremiah receives a revelation from God concerning the future, and he has an obligation to tell the truth. James Russell Lowell put it this way. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or evil side. Then it is the brave man chooses while the coward turns aside. You see, it's the brave man and it's the brave woman who chooses to come to grips with the problem of evil and the problem of sin and the problem of darkness and the problem of emptiness and the problem of guilt and the problem of estrangement from God. It takes real courage to walk away from your sin. And then walk right into the arms of a Jesus who will love you and forgive you. The promise has to come true. So much so, look what the Lord says to Jeremiah in verse 10. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up every man in his tent and burn the city with fire. Pause. If God says the Chaldeans are going to burn the city with fire, what's going to happen? The Chaldeans are going to burn the city with fire. That's the bad news. But do you realize that the promises of God are all true? When Jesus says, If you'll turn from your sin and you'll turn to me, I'll forgive you. If you'll believe in me, I'll forgive you. If you'll confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, then I'll forgive you. Now think about it. When Jesus is talking to his disciples in Jeremiah chapter 14 and he says, I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to receive you to myself so that where I am, that's where you will be as well. The moment that the Lord says, I'm going to take you to heaven with me. What's the truth? Nothing will stop the promise of God that he has made in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You know what that means? That no matter what, no matter how dark the day, no matter how deep the pain, no matter how problematic the betrayal, no matter how depressing the emptiness seems no matter how crowded your heart becomes God will make good on his promise 
The Lord impresses upon them the absolute certainty of judgment. What if there's an amazing victory? The whole army of the Chaldeans seem overwhelmed. God says, you know what? Then I'll take what few wounded men who are left and somehow I'll give them supernatural powers to burn this city to the ground. What if the whole human race decides to rise up as one and defy God? The Bible says that he's still going to accomplish everything that he promised to accomplish. Judgment delayed, by the way, is not judgment canceled or withdrawn. I want you to think that through just for a moment. God's promises are sure. And then he gives a picture of persecution, the arrest and the imprisonment of Jeremiah after that wonderful statement. Look what it says in verse 11. And it happened when the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of Pharaoh's army, that Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem to go into the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. When the siege lifted, Jeremiah took the opportunity to return to Anathoth, which was in the province of Benjamin, to claim his property. And in verse 13, it says, And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Arijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah. And he sees Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, you're defecting to the Chaldeans. Now, if you ever get an opportunity to go with me to, to Jerusalem, there are gates that surround the community. There's an eastern gate. There's a western gate. There's a southern gate. There's a northern gate. The northern gate is the gate that led out of the city and it would follow a road. So these gates, like the, the gate that leads to Damascus or the gate that leads to Jericho, or in other words, all of these gates going in different directions. So the Benjamin gate is located at the north wall of the city and a guard grabs Jeremiah and he accuses the prophet of desertion. By the the way, his name Arijah means the Lord sees or the Lord provides. And it's pretty unusual in the Bible and particularly in, in this time period that a person is given both the name of the son and the grandson. So apparently whoever he is, he's well liked and well known and he's given a great position of responsibility. Then Jeremiah said, false. I'm not defecting to the Chaldeans, but he did not listen to him. So Arijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Now, understand what's happening. Jeremiah is taking the opportunity to go visit home. He is accused of treason and desertion by Arijah. And this is what's problematic. When you are the one who's the patriot, when you are the one who's willing to lay down his life for his country, few things hurt more than to be called a traitor. I want you to think about it for just a moment. Who in Judea, who in Jerusalem was more loyal to the Jewish people? Who was more loyal to the God of Israel? Who was more loyal to God? Who was more loyal to his promises? Who was more loyal to his command? Who was more loyal to the things of God, the person of God, the plan of God, 
What king, what prince, what soldier was more loyal than Jeremiah? No one. Jeremiah enters into sacrifice. Remember what we've already learned? Jeremiah, I need you to speak for me. And he, did, he will. Jeremiah, I need you to not marry. I need you to remain single. So he remains single. Jeremiah embraces every sacrifice and every opportunity to do exactly what God wants. Jeremiah comes so that the people could hear from God. Jeremiah comes on the scene so that he can be a light in a dark place. So that he can, so that he can present a true word from God instead of a false God. And so there's few things that are more troubling, more problematic, more hurtful for, for a person to say, you don't love God and you don't know God and you're not hearing from God and you're not communicating the promises of God. As a matter of fact, what you are is you're a traitor to the people of God and you're a traitor to the, the city of God and you're a traitor. And so it says the princes were angry with Jeremiah and they struck him and they put him in prison in the house of Jonathan, the scribe, for they had made that the prison. Get the picture. The leaders beat him and they throw him into a makeshift prison. And the makeshift prison, look, it says it's the house of Jonathan the scribe. Can you imagine the leaders of your country coming to you one day and saying, hey, look, here's what we need to do. We need to make your house a a temporary prison for these troublemakers. It seems far-fetched, but this is exactly... What happened in World War II when people were literally kicked out of their houses and and they were made into temporary places of incarceration? Can you imagine? Can you imagine if someone came to you and they said, we want your house to be the place where we can persecute the people of God. This is the place where we want to imprison them, incarcerate them, torture them. It says, when Jeremiah entered the dungeon and the cells, and Jeremiah had remained there many days. This is an interesting expression in the Hebrew language when it says, entered the dungeon and the cells. It's the Hebrew words, el bet abor vel hakanan yot. In the Hebrew it says, entered the dungeon. Into the stalls or vaults. The dungeon is the same word that's later going to be translated the pit. It's the same word that's going to be used to describe the cistern in chapter 38, um, verse 6, when Jeremiah is going to be thrown into the pit. And by the way, there are five steps in Jeremiah's prison experiences. He's arrested at the gate. He's committed to prison on false charges in verses 11 through 15. He's going to be released from the prison, but then restricted to the courtyard of the prison at the end of the chapter in verses 17 through 21. He's going to be imprisoned in the miry dungeon of Malchiah in chapter 38, verse 6. He's going to 
again be released from the dungeon and then kept in the prison courtyard until the capture of the city in chapter 38, verses 17 through 28. And then he's going to be carried in chains from the city by Nebuzaradin, who's the captain of the guard. He's going to finally be released at Ramah in chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. So I want you to think it through. Jeremiah is going to experience a series of painful persecutions and incarcerations. So when it says the dungeon, the root word of the second word, the cells, is a word that meant to incline or a tradesman's stall. The, the idea is, imagine this was used as a, as a place for a merchant to sell their merchandise, but then they were put in curved posts or crooked bars. The implication is that Jeremiah is forced to sit or stoop in a cramped area. Picture, if you will, a closet. Where you can't lay down completely. But that you have to sit. And you have to sit hunched. Cramped. You're never comfortable. You're always in a place of discomfort. Why is Jeremiah there? Because he's ignoring God's word? Because he's running from the truth? Is he experiencing hardship and pain even though he's exactly in the center of God's will? The answer is yes. And that should speak to your heart. Because you're probably wondering, well, if I'm experiencing pain and if I'm experiencing discomfort and I'm experiencing hardship and, and I'm experiencing in a place not just of personal inconvenience, but actual pain. Does that mean I'm somehow out of God's will? Not necessarily. Jeremiah is doing exactly what the Lord would have him to do. And look what it says in verse 17. Then Zedekiah, the king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house and said, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, there is. Then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Now, I need you to understand what's happening. He's been in a painful prison for many, many days. The king says, is there any word from the Lord? I need you to ask the text a question. What does the king want to hear? What does the king want to hear? Go ahead, you can say it. What does he want to hear? Have you got a word from the Lord? I was wrong. The Babylonian army is gone for good. We're spared. Everything's going to be okay. All of the earlier things that I said, they weren't true. You've dodged a bullet, King Zedekiah. Is that what he wants to hear? That's exactly what he wants to hear. Now, I need you to think this through. 
Zedekiah was hoping that persecution and torture and intimidation would change the message. But will it? Will torture and intimidation and pain? Will it change the message of God and Christ in your life? Will you, like Job's wife, say, look, why don't you just curse God and die? Why don't you let the cancer do what it's going to do? Why don't you let the joblessness, why don't you let the unemployment, why don't you let the pain, why don't you let the failed relationship, why don't you let every single reason that you can think of to abandon God and abandon Christ and abandon the message of hope, why don't you just let it, why don't you allow the persecution, the torture, the intimidation to just change your mind and change your heart and change everything? But are all of those things going to change? Is the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus going to be changed because of our suffering and our affliction? Is he still going to be the Lord? Is he still going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Andrew Blackwood points out some similarities between Zedekiah and Jeremiah and Pilate's encounter with Jesus. He writes, quote, in each case, the prisoner was the free man and the ruler had the outward paraphernalia of majesty and power. But he was chained by fear. King Zedekiah was trapped by the policy of his his pro-Egyptian princes. He had followed their advice and his kingdom was on the brink of total destruction. Secretly, he summoned the prophet from the dungeon and asked if there were any word from the Lord. Jeremiah responded without the fierce imagery of verse 10. The Chaldean victory was certain. He added that the false prophets had been proven wrong and the sad events had had proven Jeremiah right. So he made a personal plea not to be returned to the dungeon. Zedekiah asserts his manhood at least enough to transfer Jeremiah to a place of easier confinement. He's a king and he wants what he thinks is best for the kingdom. But it isn't what God has in mind. It isn't according to the plans and purposes that God has. And so Jeremiah says what Jeremiah has to say. That all of the pain and all of the hardship and all of the persecution and all of the intimidation is not going to make the truth of God's word go away. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, what offense have I committed against you and against your servants or against this people that you put me in prison Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Do you understand what Jeremiah is doing? He's asking the king, wait a minute. Now, I want you to think about this, especially for those of you who are thinking, Gino, you've spent way too long in the book of Jeremiah. It took Jeremiah 40 years to to preach this message. I'm, I'm in good shape. I'm motoring right along. 
For those of you who have been, again, following along in the, in, in the book of Jeremiah, over and over again, the false prophet said, no, no, this isn't going to be a problem. The, the armies of the king of Babylon aren't going to come. It's not going to happen. Jeremiah is in effect saying, why don't you hold these false prophets accountable for their false prophecies? Why don't you take all of the people who lied to you over and over and over again and hold them accountable for their lies? You see, there are going to be people who have told you over and over and over again. The Bible can't be trusted. Jesus is not really the Lord. The Bible can't be trusted. Jesus isn't really the Lord. But can the Bible be trusted? And is Jesus really the Lord? The false prophets spoke without divine revelation or authority. Jeremiah speaks with authority. The false prophets promised peace when war was imminent and inevitable. The false prophet predicted no evil or trouble when judgment was at hand. The false prophet represented themselves as divinely appointed messengers of God when in fact they were self-appointed. The false prophets covered up their lies under the pretext of having visions and dreams, but it wasn't true. And in verse 20, it says, therefore, please hear now. Oh, my Lord, the king, please let my petition be accepted before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan, the scribe, lest I die there. He prays what everybody wants to pray. If you're in a prison of pain, is it okay for you to say, Lord, I'd rather not be here? I think it is. If you find yourself in an isolated place, if you find yourself incarcerated, if you find yourself in a place of profound pain, is it okay for you to go, Lord, get me out of here? I think so. Zedekiah places Jeremiah in a minimum security facility with a daily ration of bread. It says, Then Zedekiah the king commanded that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison and that they should give him a daily piece of bread from the Baker Street. In other words, he goes from maximum isolation to minimum security. You know what? I read this today of all days. Today of all days, I read that in Forbes magazine, the top 10 prisons that you want to go to, you know, what was at the top of the list. Denver. But that's the best. Forbes magazine said, hey, that's the best prison in the United States. You get this great view of the Rocky Mountains. You get 300 days of sunshine. They have a pool table and a foosball table. But it's still prison. We might think of Zedekiah's act as an act of kindness. He's willing to spare the prophet's life. But I want you to challenge the text just a little bit. And I want you to challenge Zedekiah. He's nice a little bit to Jeremiah. But he's still a slave to the bad advice of his closest counselors. And he's still willing to sentence the people of Jerusalem to death. You know why? Because he won't believe the word of God. And he won't believe the prophecy of Jeremiah. 
And by the way, for the person who says, look, I'll do you a favor. I'll just pretend like the Bible isn't true. And I'll just pretend that the promises of God aren't true. And I'll just pretend like the word of God isn't true. Am I really doing you a favor? Or in the end, am I hurting you more than words can express? You see, this is why I I, I just kind of want to encourage you to not be patient with the false prophet. You see the false for the person who's saying, well, what harm are they doing? Let me ask you a question. How do you define the word harm, the term harm? Do you think it means do you think dying in your sin and going to hell? Would you say that that constitutes harm? We can all face the truth. Or we can all run from the truth. And that's what this passage is really about. It's either running towards the truth or running away from the truth. J.I. Packer wrote, we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. You know, it's the cruelest thing that you can do. It's to run away from the truth that's in the Bible. It's to run away from the truth about your sin. It's to run away from the truth about Jesus. It's to run away from the truth about salvation. The people in Judah and Jerusalem wanted to believe that Jeremiah's message was false and harsh and premature. They wanted to believe that the political and the economic ties with Egypt would repel and then thwart the advances of Babylon. But guess what? Egypt headed south and the Babylonian army returned and food was starting to get scarce. And the resources were beginning to run out. And Jeremiah received his daily ration of bread. I wish I could tell you again that this is the worst part and it's going to get better. But the trials and the tests are just beginning for Jeremiah because the leaders have a plan for Jeremiah. They want to kill him. One will survive. One will perish. One will persevere. One will experience punishment. Jeremiah will learn the lessons of what it means to endure pain and persecution. But in the end, guess what's going to happen to the city? And guess what's going to happen to these leaders? They're going to die. And Jeremiah is eventually going to be freed. You know what unbelief does? It destroys our capacity to see. It disturbs the soul. It hardens our sensibility. It causes us to question the authority of the word of God and and God himself. Unbelief causes our feet to stumble. And it shuts up the disobedient in a different kind of prison. But those who persevere and endure, the Bible says, will be saved in Mark 8:13. We're told to hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the 
hope firm to the end, it says in Hebrews 3, 6. We are made partakers of Jesus if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, it says in Hebrews 3, 14. We're to keep the full assurance of hope till the end, it says in Hebrews 6, 11. We're to <laughs> hope. And keep Christ's works to the end, it says in Revelation 2.26. Then we shall find, as is the case every time in the scripture, that the word of his promise and the word of his command are side by side. Because Jesus over and over and over says, be faithful to the end. And I'll give you a crown of life. Be faithful. Hang in there. Jesus says, be blameless. Paul writes, be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, what he's basically saying is be in a position where you are able to say, I knew you'd keep your promise. I knew you'd keep your word. I knew that what you said was true. Chapter 38, Jeremiah is going to be released from the dungeon. Zedekiah is going to be given one more opportunity to repent. Stay tuned. Same Jeremiah time, same Jeremiah channel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we are amazed at your grace and your mercy. Lord, we don't want our prayers to be hindered. Lord, we want our prayers to be answered. And there's no more important prayer than to pray, Lord, will you please examine my heart? Like the psalmist, Lord, can we pray the prayer? Search me, O oh Lord. See if there's any wicked thing inside of me. Reveal it to me so I can get rid of it. And Lord, lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, cause me to listen and believe your promises. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.